Everybody doing all right? Did y'all do your potty break? It's usually halftime. Most of you are roaming the halls and going to the bathroom. <laughs> Want to give you a chance to get back. Hear the word of God. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of the Lord. And it's impossible to make God happy if you don't have faith. Now you're fully accepted. Jesus did all the hard stuff. But there's a joy we can bring to the Lord's heart. And the only path is through faith. Everything else, well, good luck. I'm just going to launch right into what I feel like the Lord wants me to share today. Probably be a couple of parter. We'll see. Back in 2003, there was a study done by the Barna Research Group that shows how many of our country's moral and spiritual challenges are directly related to the absence of a biblical worldview in America. Now, in this study, Barna uh, polled like 2,033 adults. This is just everybody, just Americans. Only about 4% of that 2,000 so actually had a biblical worldview as the basis for how they make decisions. Now, in order to be disciples of Jesus, to live as Jesus lived and do what Jesus did, we have to know about Jesus. And although nearly, probably almost every American has probably multiple copies of the Bible, most are not reading it. And so Barna's research shows that most Americans don't know how to integrate core biblical principles into their everyday lives. So his research, it indicates that only 9% of born-again Christians, okay? Now we're talking about us. People who said, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, going to heaven, not to hell, hallelujah. Only 9% of us have a biblical world view. Now, I'm going to believe our, our percentage is a little higher here, but... We probably need to act like it's not. Now, here's how they define, when they did this study, this is how they define what a biblical worldview is. A biblical worldview is a belief, number one, that absolute moral truth exists 
and is defined by the Bible. Number one. Number two, that Jesus Christ lived a life without any sin. Number three, that God is omnipotent and omniscient creator of the universe, that he's still ruling and running today. Number four, salvation is only a gift from God that cannot be earned. Five, that Satan is real. The next one was that Christians actually have a responsibility to share their faith in Jesus with other people. And lastly, that the Bible is accurate in all of its teachings. So so that list of statements that I just shared is, is how Barna was presenting this information. This is a biblical worldview Only 9% of born-again people believe all of that. And that's the good news. I'm going to make you happy today. (laughs) That's the good news. Now here's more information. Protestants who are from mainline denominations, which are like Lutheran, Episcopalian, uh, those denominations, Presbyterian, they came in at only 2% actually have a biblical worldview. And our poor, poor Catholic brothers and sisters, less than 1% had a biblical worldview. See, here's the thing. Our, Bibli- our, our, our worldview, it impacts our behavior. So when Barna compared the perspectives of those who have a biblical worldview with those who do not, he found some interesting statistics. For instance... Those who do not have a biblical worldview are 31 times more likely to accept cohabitation. That means boyfriend and girlfriend, not married, living together. 31 more times. They are 18 times more likely to endorse drunkenness. These are people without a biblical worldview who claim to sometimes be born again. They are also 15 times more likely to condone gay sex. They are 12 times more likely to accept profanity and cursing. They are 11 times more likely to describe adultery as morally acceptable. Adultery is when a married person has sex with someone they're not married to. People without a biblical worldview are 78 times more likely 
to accept pornography as morally acceptable. And those that don't have a biblical worldview are 12 times more likely to have cheated on their spouse in the last month. And you know, here's the thing, it's not like all their fault. Clergy, professional Christians like myself, they can take a lot of this credit. See, in the report, only half of Protestant pastors have a biblical world view. Half. Hal Lindsey had a report. He shared an expose, one of the very first exposés, on the belief system of our nation's clergy. And, the, and this was actually done by Red Book magazine in August of 1961. Okay? And the publishers of Red Book surveyed a number of seminaries, colleges preparing religious people to be pastors and reverends or whatever. Red Book surveyed a number of seminaries preparing people for Christian service in Protestant churches. Of the seminaries that they surveyed, now this is the institution, their core beliefs, what they're imparting, equipping, educating their future leaders. In 1961, only 56% rejected the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. 71% rejected that there was even life after death. These are our leaders that were being prepared in 61. This is what the seminaries were imparting. 54% rejected that Jesus was bodily resurrected. rejected that Jesus would personally come back to the earth. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. So why am I sharing these bleak statistics? Listen, here's here's why. Because we are in trouble. The Western Church of Jesus Christ is in a massive, massive crisis. And very specifically, what's happened over the last 20 years is the infiltration of a worldview called postmodernism. Now, what is that? What is postmodernism? Postmodernism is a worldview that rejects the existence of absolute moral truth. 
So, in rejecting absolute moral truth, postmodernism says that everything is relative. In other words, postmodernism says that there's really no single one story that can actually explain all of our stories. So, what's true for you? It's not necessarily true for me. Now, one of the most important foundational beliefs of postmodernism is that tolerance is the only acceptable response to those whom we don't agree with. Also, in the worldview of postmodernism, things like emotions and feeling, intuition, reflection, even things like magic, myth, mystical experiences, those things have become center stage in a postmodern world. And so what's happened is statements like, I know, have been replaced by, I feel. And since I feel is how postmodernists live their lives, they move and act based on whether something feels good. Whether or not it works for me. Hey, going to church every Sunday may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. This is a major problem for Christianity. Why is that? Because postmodernism is in direct contradiction and conflict with a biblical world view. So here's the scripture I want to kind of lead off with which is kind of in line with what we've been sharing about love. And that's in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. It says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Everybody say, Love rejoices, love rejoices. With, the with the truth. Now, In order for us to fully demonstrate love, we have to, must to, absolutely got to rejoice with the truth. Now, before I get into the specific application of this scripture, I want to give some background on why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to the church that lives in the Greek city, Corinth. Now, just like the American church of today, the church in Corinth was in serious, serious trouble. Everybody say, oh no. And and what complicated the problem with the Corinth church was that not just that they had a lot of problems like we do, 
But what was sad is that all those problems didn't actually stay just inside with the church family. They were actually known by unbelievers outside of the church. So to begin with, the church at Corinth was a defiled church. How do we make that assertion? Because some of its members were guilty of sexual immorality and drunkenness. Ultimately, what they were doing was they used the grace of God as an excuse for their worldly living. Now, the other problem with the Corinth church was it was a divided church. See, it actually had at least four different groups competing for leadership. Remember when Paul said, well, you know, I, I hear these reports that some of you are saying, I follow Paul and others, so I follow Apollos, and some of you saying uh, Cephas, and, and then some of you are even saying, I'm just so spiritual, I can't follow any man, I only follow Jesus. Oh, I've heard it too. <laughs> Brother, I follow no man. I follow only the Lord. Good for you. Read your Bible. So how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, here's the way it happened. The members of the church there permitted the sins of the city to get inside the local assembly. You see, Corinth was a defiled city filled with every kind of sin and worldly pleasure. Everything was available. In fact, about the lowest accusation you could make against a man in that day was to be calling him a Corinthian. It was an insult. People knew what you were talking about was said, wow, you're a Corinthian guy, huh? That's the way it was. They knew what you were talking about. Here's the other problem. Corinth was very proud. It was a, a very proud city that had a lot of philosophical um, thinking. Had a lot of traveling teachers promoting their speculations with very eloquent and crafty speech. Unfortunately, this philosophical approach was being applied to the gospel by some of the members of the church. And what that did is it began to foster division. In fact, the church was made up of even different schools of thought instead of being united behind the gospel message. Now, of course, when you have prideful people, depending on human wisdom, adopting the lifestyle of the world, you are going to have problems. Big ones. So in order to help them solve their problems, Paul had to remind the church at Corinth of a whole bunch of stuff. 
And today, I just want to remind us of one thing. Love rejoices with the truth. Everybody say, love rejoices with the truth. Now say, I rejoice with the truth. Now, most of us would probably say, I want to love and I want to be loved, right? Who likes that one? Come on, wave your hand. I want to be loved by you, by you and nobody else but you. Good. I've been feeling it the whole time, brother. We are there. Bromance is in the works. We especially love the emotion of love, don't we? Oh, it feels so warm and fuzzy. And probably most of us would say, I like to rejoice. Yay, let's have a party. That's why there were 100 plus then last night and not so many here today. We love to rejoice. But you come to church if you want truth. And if I come and I don't get loved and the party's not hyped enough, my bed is a funner place to be. That's the problem we have. We don't have a problem with the love, especially the emotional one. We don't have a problem with rejoicing. We have a problem with truth. Let's read in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, starting in verse 33. Pilate went back inside the palace. This is the story about Jesus and his crucifixion. Pilate went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate asked. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not really of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this reason I came into the world to testify. To the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And here's the voice of our generation from Pilate What is truth? Pilate asked a question that's still being asked. Today, what is truth? Well, for us to be able to answer that, we really still have to go back to what kind of worldview do you have? Are you in line with doubt and unbelief of the postmodern worldview 
Or do you possess a biblical worldview? Let me help answer that for you. If you're a professing Christian, you have an obligation to think out your worldview. You see, you pledged by your covenant with God, the God of the Bible, to learn His ways and to follow Him, whether you know it or not. You pledged by your covenant with the God of the Bible to learn His ways and to follow Him. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. If you're going to follow Christ, then you have to be aware of how God wants you to view the world. And you have to learn to live by his world view. And here's one of the cornerstones in God's worldview. John 14. You ready, Justin? Jesus answered in verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If our love is going to grow into maturity, we, the people of God, have to rejoice that Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. See, Jesus didn't say, I am a truth. He said, I am the truth. The. Now, that's not just a word we put in in, to help translate this. It's actually a Greek word, meaning the. The truth. Now, we know in 1 John 4, 16, it says that God is love, right? And we talked about, I shared a few weeks ago about love being not soft and how the only way we could know love is we have to know God. We cannot know what love is unless we know God. God is love, right? Not love is God. Not love is something God does. God is love. To know love, we must know God. That's why love isn't always soft. It's not always emotional. So the same thing applies to Jesus. We cannot know what true truth is. Everybody say true truth. truth. We cannot know what true truth is unless we know the man Christ Jesus. In him we see the truth of God walking in human form. Now it also means... That Jesus is the supreme truth. See, no other truth has 
any power or authority over the truth of who Jesus is. Someone say amen to that. No other truth has power or authority over the truth of who Jesus is. For instance, it may be a fact that I'm sick. But the supreme truth is Jesus heals all sickness and disease. If love is going to rejoice in truth, then we have to rejoice in all that Jesus is. All that Jesus is. And for us, for any of us, to deny that Jesus is the truth is to deny our very salvation. Let that sit on you just for a minute. That's how serious this is. You see, we can't get just a little bit of Jesus. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. You see, Jesus can't just be our fire insurance. He has to be Lord and ruler, creator, judge, and almighty king. As well as savior and healer and redeemer. See, we cannot have Jesus as a lamb without Jesus as a lion. We can't have the prince of peace without a conquering king. And we cannot have the great shepherd without the great judge. We can't have grace without truth. And we can't have truth without grace. See, what happens is when grace is absent of truth, we get into lawlessness. That's what happened to the Corinthian church. They used grace as a license because truth wasn't working its work in their lives. So when we're just grace, 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 and truth never shows up in our conversation, we start living loose. And we get into lawlessness. Truth without grace becomes legalism. It's all about the do's and don'ts. It's about the black and whiteness of everything. You cannot have one without the other. So listen, our biblical worldview, it has to begin, has to begin with Jesus is the truth. And when we agree with Jesus is the truth, then we also have to agree with what Jesus does and what Jesus says. Here's one of the important statements that Jesus made. John 17, verse 17. He said, sanctify them by truth. And then he tells us where truth comes from. The source of it. He said, your word 
is truth. Say, your word is truth. How about the youth? Let's hear it. Your word is truth. Awesome. Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth, has declared to us that the word of God, the Bible, is true. Truth is recorded in God's word. And here's the thing. We can find all the answers to all of life's questions in the Bible. You see, truth is meant to be the focal point of one's life. When we rejoice in truth, we are, what we're saying is we're rejoicing in the message of the Bible. Your word is truth. Love rejoices in truth. We rejoice in the Bible. It should be our joy. I love what David says in Psalm 12, verse 6. He says, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver, refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. So here's the thing. If we're going to grow in love, it means rejoicing in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. And to have a biblical worldview, we have to know what truth is. And a part of our biblical worldview is grounded in the fact that truth is embodied in Jesus Christ. We have to get this into our heart. We have to get this into our spirit. Truth is embodied in the person of Jesus, and truth is found in the Word of God. And to have a different opinion, okay, to have, as I said before, is to deny the foundation of your salvation. You and I, we have no hope of eternal life if we do not believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Meaning no one gets to heaven. No one escapes hell without Knowing Jesus is the truth. Everything Jesus spoke to us is the truth. Everything God speaks to us through the Old Testament and the New Testament is truth. The writings of the apostles, they are truth. Jesus said God's word is truth. Our entire Bible is the word of God, and it is truth. And now I sound like a broken record. I'm sorry you're bored. Everybody smile real big. Smile even bigger. And now give me a goofy, teethy smile. 
There we go. Get your endorphins popping. It'll help you remember. I'm hitting this hard because we are losing this worldview. Okay? We're losing it. The authority of the Word of God is not reaching us like it's supposed to. And because it's not reaching us, it's not shaping us. And since it's not shaping us, we're not looking very much like Jesus these days. Second Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. says, all scripture, everybody say all scripture, is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, here's the thing. Of course the Bible says about itself that the Bible is true. How do we know that anything in the Bible is true? I mean, this is the question that's being asked. This is why we're losing our worldview of the Bible. How do you know what your Bible says is true? Of course your Bible says your Bible's true. I say I'm true. You say you're true. Well, I want us to know that Christianity is not just a blind faith. In fact, it's the only religion that can prove itself. Now, I realize that there are still people who tell others that they follow Christianity or Christ because it feels right. Or some kind of wording like that, but it's very unfortunate since there is an incredible amount of evidence supporting the Bible and the Christian way of life. And so I'm going to share some of those with you today. If you want to write some of these down, it might be good. And I'm just scratching the surface here today. I'm not even going to be able to go into how all of it's true. First of all, science proves the Bible. You see, there is a great deal of scientific evidence that supports the Bible. As a matter of fact, in the book of Leviticus, which was written like before 1400 B.C., it describes to us the value of blood. Let's read that in Leviticus 17, verse 11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now here's what we know about blood. 
Blood carries water and nourishment to every cell in your body. It helps to maintain the body's temperature, and it removes waste material of the body's cells. The blood is also what carries oxygen from the lungs throughout the entire body. Now, do you realize that it wasn't until 1616 that William Harvey discovered that blood circulation is the key factor in physical life? Confirming what the Bible had already said 3,000 years before. Science is always in a catch-up game. Leviticus, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Duh. Thank you, Harvey. So science proves the Bible. And that's just one. Here's another proof. It's called prophecy. One of the strongest arguments for the accuracy of our Bible is its 100% Accuracy in predicting the future. Did you know that? 100% accuracy. Now, these future predictions are called prophecies in the Bible. Now, we know that the Old Testament was written between approximately 1450 B.C. through about 430 B.C. And during that time... Many predictions of the future were recorded in the Bible by God's prophets. And of the events that were to have taken place by now, every single one has happened just the way it was predicted it would. That's 100%. There is not one other sacred writing that has such perfectly accurate Predictions of the future. None. So the prophecy is a proof. Another proof is textual evidence. Here's what I mean by that. Both the Old and New Testaments are strongly supported by manuscript evidence. And a manuscript evidence is early handwritten copies. That's what a manuscript is, a handwritten copy. Of course, we've all heard about the famous Dead Sea Scrolls. They're just one example of the Old Testament evidence. But did you know that there are also over 20,000 known manuscripts documenting the New Testament text? Over 20,000. So what that does is it makes the New Testament the most reliable document of antiquity. It is the now most reliable document of antiquity. What's antiquity mean? It means before the printing press. Now, these documents, they vary... The manuscripts vary in size from just a part of a page to an entire Old and New Testament Bible. 
And the earliest New Testament manuscripts dated from about the second century, which is like 100 to 199 A.D. And these manuscripts, these copies that were written in different languages by different people of different nationalities, cultures, and backgrounds. Now here's the thing. In spite of all of that difference... Between all of those cultures and nationalities and languages, every New Testament text agrees with itself. Dude, you can't make this happen. Here's another proof that our Bible is authentic. Holy and God-inspired. The proof of people living during the time of Christ. You see, special proof exists for the New Testament. And here's why. Because Christians were strongly persecuted by both the Jews and the Roman government. You see, here's the thing. If the New Testament writings were false... Those two groups, the, the, the Jews and the Romans, would have been able to produce a great deal of evidence to stop the growth of the sect. Here's the thing. None exists. And additionally, the New Testament writings circulated during the lifetimes of thousands of people who actually saw Jesus with their very own eyes. They actually saw with their own eyes the miracles of Jesus. They saw the historical events of the life of Jesus happen with their very own eyes. Thousands and thousands of people. Eyewitness testimony. And because of that, no one in those days were able to refute the New Testament as writings about fairy tales. It doesn't exist. Someone say amen. amen. And here's the last one. I will be done on the dot. Can't pr- you, you can't plan this. this is, it just happens. This is proof that I'm in line with the word of Jesus. Oh, God help us. Here we go. The last one. The proof of historians. And when I say historians, I mean secular historians. You see, secular, which means not sacred, meaning not one of the storytellers of the Bible, people who don't claim to be a member of the faith or aren't writing to support or encourage or proliferate the faith. Secular history itself supports the Bible. For example... 
There's a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. It was written by Flavius Josephus. He was a secular historian. And in his 18th book of The Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 3, in paragraph 3, he makes this historical record. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many, both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was said to be the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, meaning his leaders, the Jewish leaders, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day. He's he's telling the history of, of a man being raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus. Let's sing along. Okay. For he appeared to them... Alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. So this is a secular, historic record about Jesus. He rose from the dead, and he's got a bunch of people following him. Here's another one. In 115 A.D., a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus, he wrote this passage and refers to Jesus in this passage. He calls him Christus, which means the Messiah. And he wrote a book called The Annals. And in his 15th book, in chapter 44, he writes this. Nero looked around for a scapegoat and inflicted the most fiendish tortures on a group of persons already hated for their crimes. This was the sect known as Christians. Their founder, one Christus, had been put to death by the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. This checked the abominable superstition for a while. I mean, it kind of... Things quieted. But it broke out again and spread. Not merely through Judea, where it originated, but even to Rome itself. The great reservoir and collecting ground for every kind of depravity and filth. Those who confessed to being Christians were at once arrested. But on their testimony, a great crowd of people were convicted. Not so much on the charge of arson but of hatred of the entire human race. Their deaths were made farcical. The deaths, now he's talking about Christians here. He said, their deaths were made farcical. Farcical means absurd, like they were killed in really 
outlandish and absurd thing, ways. And, and he tells, he describes it. He says, they were dressed in, in the skins of wild animals, and they were torn to pieces by dogs. See, they would pull their hunting dogs together, and they would think it was a bear or a lion. And these dogs were trained to, you know, destroy. So they thought the Christian inside of the bear skin was a bear. And these dogs would rip them apart. Or they were crucified. Or one of the most absurd ways was that these Christians were turned into torches. Human torches ignited at night to light their paths. These people suffered for the truth. Not for a feeling. Not for a postmodern worldview. They died. And we have a secular history that tells us about it. It gives us proof that what we have is from heaven. If you agree with that, just stand up with me. We're just going to pray. Love rejoices with the truth. We have been a people, Father, who love pleasure, who rejoice in the ease of life, are full of pride, overfed. We don't care about those who are suffering, the poor and the needy, God. Church in America, Father, has become the church of Corinth, church in Rome. We've been defiled. And we're being divided. But today, Father, I stand before you. And we, your people, stand before you, God. So today, we declare that we rejoice in the truth. God, forgive us for being led emotionally all the time. Forgive us for being soft when we weren't supposed to be soft. Forgive us for thinking love is only soft and only emotional and only secular romantic. Forgive us, God. And I pray, God, that you would lead us. Lead us back to, God, the foundation of truth. That Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. God, I reject the worldview of postmodernism. And I say yes, God, to your biblical worldview. One that's found in the very word of God. And I ask you, God, to forgive me for not being a voice. 
for being afraid to share the truth. For fear of being rejected. If I speak the truth in love. Forgive me, God. You didn't call me to be popular. You called me to be faithful. And I, like any man, God, want the praise of men, but I say I'm sorry, God. Sorry I've made myself an idol. Sorry I've made people's opinions idol. Sorry I've idolatized this culture, God. failed you, God, at being in the world, but not of it. I repent. And I just ask today, Lord, that we would grow and mature in love. That we would be a people who rejoice in the truth. Help us, God, to reverse the truth decay that's happening in our churches and in our nation. Give us courage, God, as we become unpopular. Give us boldness, God, as we become hated and rejected. They may not be able to physically burn us at a stake, but, God, they will try to torch our lives their words I just say God make us strong give us courage let men and women rise up in this place who will live not for this age but for the age to come we lift our eyes to you Abba the only place our help comes from. Make us wise. Make us strong. Fill us with love. Fill us with grace and truth. We may turn back the tide that is coming over America. For your name's sake, God, we commit by our pledge to our covenant with you to live our lives according to your will. In Jesus' name. If you're here today and you need prayer, you need God to come and move on your heart, you're welcome to come to the altar and no one will bother you if you need someone to pray with you, you can come over here. We'll have prayer people available. Encourage you to seek truth in God's word this week. Rediscover it and align your life to it. In Jesus' name, God bless you.